Welcome to the Heavenly Banquet, where the hungry are filled with good things. I'm Chad. And I'm Charlotte. Charlotte, I have a big question for you today. Excellent. Here you go. Is Christianity the only true religion? Mm. (laughs) See, we have this space where we can really ruminate on this and go just to so many places, uh, which is a privilege. I, you know, if somebody from my congregation or a friend or somebody just asked me that, I think my first instinct is going to be like, why? <laughs> why are you asking me that? But yeah, good point. Well, I'm, because I want to know what the concern behind it is. Are you worried that, you know, a friend of yours who is part of another faith might be outside of God's reign or out cut off from salvation? Mm-hmm. Are you worried about people who lived in different times and places and don't didn't have access to the gospel. Yeah. Are you worried that other people might be in the same line to heaven as you are? <laughs> there are people Is worried that about worry? that. Oh, I think so. Uh, you know, the constant who's in, who's out. If yeah. I if they're also in, it makes my being in not quite as special. So uh, you know, I kind of want to get to like you know, the pastoral concern behind that or the the heart of that question. Not that the answer is going to change, but the approach to getting there might. Yeah. Um, what I know and what I affirm to be true is that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, the path to salvation, mm-hmm. as I understand it, as it's been taught to me, as it's been testified to in the gospels. And so that's the way that I believe and it's the way that I teach others. Mm-hmm. But I don't also see that as being limited, right? Um what God chooses to do outside of that or within that framework. Yeah. I don't have really any way to speak to that. Yeah, honestly. I hear you. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I can start to talk about different ways that other, that theologians or the tradition has approached this question, but I kind of feel like it's not my business. (laughs) (laughs) I feel you. Yeah. I mean, I think we can proclaim the truth of Christ without denying that there is truth that can be found in other religions. I don't. I don't find that to be a controversial claim. I know some people would, but right. actually, I think we can go further than that. We can say not only can we proclaim the truth of Christ without denying that there's truth that can be found in other religions, but I think we can say, I would say we can say there is truth in other religions, at least. I mean, here's the thing, the golden rule, right? Matthew 7, 12, in everything do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets, which is a huge claim in and of itself. Uh-huh, it is, yeah. So the, the law and the prophets, you can kind of sum up in, in everything do to others as you would have them do, do to you, uh, the golden rule. Well, you can find some variation 
of the golden rule in virtually every major religion. If you just Google golden rules, you can find lists of them. Mm-hmm. So at least in that respect, you can find that same truth in virtually every major religion. So, but yeah, I mean, we can proclaim the truth of Christ without denying that truth. Some that there is truth that can be found in other religions. I don't. I don't think that's a controversial claim. Do we have any definitive statements in church history concerning this issue? Yeah, so what's interesting in church history is we have those, you know, so many early statements about there's no salvation outside the church with a big C, right? Right. Outside of the body of believers. And I'm particularly, I think, talking about access to the sacraments there as well. And that sounds like it's in like real deep contrast to being able to say that others might be saved regardless of their relationship to the church. Mm-hmm. But then when we really start to talk about even how those people defined what the church was, then we're in a different kind of space. Yeah. Because it's the logic ultimately is a little circular if we have some definitions of the church that are talking about that as the body of the faithful then we we really didn't get anywhere to defining that does that make because you know as, as you well know there were early we have early writings justin martyr you know i was going to say people like plato and people that had no idea of christ are saved because of their orientation toward the good Okay, well, a much a much more recent statement. How about that? A section of Lumen Gentium from Vatican II that I really like uh, speaks to this a little bit about the possibility of salvation outside the church. Mm-hmm. And it's the language is kind of open, so I can see how some people could decide to lean toward a more closed approach here, but it addresses three things really primarily first of all and and we have to remember this is coming out of the middle of the 20th century right Mm -hmm. vatican ii and built upon some earlier statements by Pius and others so one thing that it affirms is the the jewish covenant right so the israelites are god's chosen people that hasn't changed god didn't change the rules on them Right. So they're not somehow disbarred from a salvific reality unless they convert to Christianity. Mm-hmm. And some of that obviously is in response to the Holocaust. It also affirms the plan of salvation, also includes those who acknowledge the Creator. In the first place, amongst these, there are the Muslims who professing to hold the faith of Abraham. Along with us, adore the one and merciful God, who on the last day will judge mankind. I think that might come as a surprise to some folks, right? That's a startling statement, yeah. Yeah, but talking about there's a relationship here within all humanity, but a particular relationship within those who share the Abrahamic faiths, Mm -hmm. right? And then the uh, next statement's even more exciting. It says, nor is God far distant from those who in shadows and images seek the unknown God, 
for it is he who gives to all men life and breath and all things, and as Savior wills that all men be saved. So we're talking there about philosophers and those who seek wisdom, and it has a not at all veiled, I think, allusion to Plato, right? Plato's yeah. cave kind of that it's it doesn't just say, you know, uh, wisdom and philosophy, but those who are in shadows and images. Oh, that is Plato's the cave. unknown God, yeah. right? And then it also says, you know, those also can attain to salvation who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, yet sincerely seek God and moved by grace, strive by their deeds to do his will as it is known to them through the dictates of conscience. They're also affirming kind of natural law, natural Mm -hmm. kind of moral law, and like what you're bringing up with the golden rules stuff, that there is a way in which the fabric of creation has obviously the stamp of the creator on it and that people have some kind of access to that regardless of whether or not they hear the gospel. This statement's going to tell you who's in who's in real trouble are those who, quote, knowing that the uh, Catholic Church with a big C, which was made necessary by Christ, would refuse to enter it or to remain in it. That's up for question. Or here it says could not be saved. Um, so those who reject. Now, this is obviously, you know, as I said, a Roman Catholic document. But this are part of the documents from the Vatican II that have shaped the mainline interfaith discourse, ecumenical discourse, mm-hmm. you know, one of the, the biggest things really to happen to the church in the 20th century. 20th uh, but century, you, yeah. you have this affirming the Abrahamic faiths, affirming natural law, affirming the place of creation, affirming those who seek the good in some way as having some kind of at least potential access to salvation. I think also, you know, what we hear here is this kind of this kinship, this idea of the the people of God. Um, I think this is a different question too, if we're talking about like, are you saved (laughs) stuff again? And this me and Jesus stuff, but you know, the broadest part of the tradition is not really as concerned with individual salvation. It's the salvation of the people Mm -hmm. Um, and particularly a teleology that looks towards an ultimate salvation of all people. Right. Um, being wrapped up in this new creation. It reminds me of uh, 1 Timothy 4.10, where it says, For to this end we toil and struggle, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Which is a wild statement. So God is the Savior of all people. Mm-hmm. And then it says, especially of those who believe. Yeah, and I think the the kind of caveat here is that we're not saying, or I'm not advocating, like, this is actually a choose-your-own-adventure story, where, like, all of these different faiths or ways, Mm -hmm. possible ways, are, let's say, equal or equally valid. It it still impresses on me the import of sharing our particular story, our particular faith. 
because right. those are the teachings that I have. Those are the words of Jesus that I have. So that's what's to be shared and offered as the means of salvation. But that doesn't mean that anything that doesn't encounter that is necessarily cut off. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, our responsibility is to proclaim Christ, not to proclaim how everybody else is getting it wrong. (laughs) And yet, (laughs) we know the traditions that would do that, right? That that is the, the basic content of that preaching and teaching is who's the list of who's going to hell you know yeah exactly yeah so then i guess the next question is kind of you know how do you how do we relate to people of other faiths love your neighbor as yourself yeah i don't know <laughs> don't, don't be <laughs> well <clears throat> but i know there's there's christians out there that believe you know if they don't proselytize their neighbor, their neighbor's going to burn in hell, or they feel some compulsion to show this other person from another faith how terribly wrong they are, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, a fairly specific way of approaching the question of how I think about not only the truth of my faith, but the truth of other faiths. I mean, first, just as concerns my own faith, and the things that I believe, I'm a fallibilist. And, and by that, I mean, fallibilism, you know, from the word fallible, is a position one can take in regard to what they believe, which basically says that I can believe something is true, i.e. Christ is Lord and Savior, while also recognizing that I could be wrong, I could be mistaken. In other words, you know, to be a fallibilist is to be conscious of the fact that I am fallible. I mean, we believe all kinds of things are true, especially when it comes to religious beliefs, that we have no way of proving for certain. So fallibilism is, as a philosophical principle, just takes that fact into account. I can believe things that I can't prove to be true. You know, I can't prove them beyond a doubt. For instance, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. We we all do that. But it also means I can't act like what somebody else believes is simply rubbish because it's not what I believe. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So it gives me a certain amount of humility concerning my beliefs. I believe Christ is the way and the truth and the life. But I also recognize that's a belief. Um, it's not in, an indubitable certainty that I can prove to anyone else, really. So that's the first thing, how I think about my own faith. But when it concerns the faith of others, people of other religions, I have to ask myself, what do I know about something that I only really know from the outside? I mean, my lived faith is Christianity. My lived faith is not Buddhism or Islam. or Um, whatever religion you want to take. I know the Christian faith in a very intimate way because it's my faith. It's the faith in which I live. I don't know any other faith in that way. 
Now, I know things about other religions. Um, you know, I have a survey knowledge, so to speak. I've read books on other religions, but I'm always approaching those from the outside. It's not my own lived faith. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so I have to approach whatever judgments I make, which I try not to, about other faiths with a certain amount of humility. Um, because it's just not the faith in which I live. So those two things uh, give me a certain amount of humility, not only how I wear my own faith, so to speak, but how I think about the faith of others and how I approach the faith of others. You know, if I take a, a course on world religions, I may have information about these other religions, but I don't know them from the inside. So I think that makes a, a big difference. Now, you know, someone might respond to that and say, well, there are certain truth claims in the various religions that are incompatible with each other. That's most likely true. But I wouldn't accept anyone else reducing my faith to the various things we believe as Christians. Mm -hmm. You know, my faith is not a set of truth claims. Mm -hmm. It's, It's a matter of trust and commitment and ultimately relationship with a transcendent God. Mm-hmm. So although philosophers of religion can engage in debates regarding those competing truth claims, and that can all be very interesting, but those really have little to nothing to do with lived faith, the experience of living one's faith, one's life in the context of a particular faith. So, you know, to the question, is Christianity the only true religion? It's the only one I know of. Right. I think that's a fair, a more than fair approach. I mean, what I also, you know, another place where I am is kind of, I'm not called upon to work out my own salvation. So why am I called by these kind of questions? I think people want me to rise up and like wrestle somebody else's salvation in order, you know, and that's contrary to my understanding of how things work either and then i know i know then that gets the claim of kind of anti-nominalism or something where it's just like everybody do whatever and it'll be fine no we're talking if we're talking about the major world religions as ways to understand the world Mm -hmm. someone's relationship within it and relationships with one another and or ways to understand what it means to live a good life. I don't, I don't have much quarrel with that. I'm, I'm going to tell my story. I'm going to answer with my story. Mm-hmm. I'd love to be in conversation with somebody else about where our stories intersect, but I don't feel the same need to, you know, convince somebody else that you've got to grasp. You've got to grasp on to this other one. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, my other reaction to a question like this is I I know what's to be brought to mind is to think about the Buddhist and the Hindu and Sikh and other major world religions. I don't think those are nearly the same threat as far as maybe causing division between a person and another person or a person and their god, our god, as are the religions of 
capitalism or the military industrial <laughs> complex or the myth of nationalism i mean like these other stories that actually are have supplanted christianity in a very serious way in our country you know yeah. that make direct competing claims against the gospel in right. the way that other world religions actually don't yeah, people can put their faith in virtually anything. And in, in mm -hmm. our culture, people are putting their faith in all kinds of strange stuff. I mean, people are there are people who darken the door of the church every Sunday and their faith is in something contrary to Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Their faith is their politics or or like you said, nationalism or something like that. And that's where competing truth claims are, really are a problem. I mean, who's your allegiance? When we proclaim Christ as Lord, that's the allegiance. So, yeah. 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 You kind of touched on this earlier, the idea of pluralism, which is the idea that all paths lead to the same source. And my response to that would be kind of what I was saying earlier. I don't even know how to navigate that kind of question because in order for me to know whether all paths lead to the same source I, they would all have to be my lived faith and that's just not possible right i mean i have no idea if all religions are all to the same source because i'm not living every single religion in my daily experience so i wouldn't call myself a pluralist what i would say and this is you know my opinion my, my understanding of god is that god can go down any path to reach a person Mm -hmm. um, I don't think God is limited in that way. And that's kind of what I heard from what you were reading from Vatican II. Is that pluralism? I don't think so. Mm -mm. Um, I think that's a different claim. So, I mean, I, I, my big thing is <clears throat> doxastic humility, having humility about my faith and my beliefs and not treating them like they're obviously certain. And, and you're a rube if you don't believe what I believe. Right. That's not going to win hearts and minds at all. Yeah. I think the other place where we should break it some humility and have become more aware of in the last 80 years or something is the fact that what we, we in the West had previously been foisting upon everybody um, as Christianity was a very particular cultural form of christianity right i mean yeah. what happened during colonialism and this supposed striving toward conversion and to save people and how many people we just decided we would murder rather than save that's not funny but that's what we did um but to maintain that kind of humility too in conversations with people of other faiths or other cultures too, that my Christianity is very much as, as widely as I try to read and as much as I try to open myself up to different perspectives, it's going to be informed by my experiences as yeah. a white cishet woman in America, you know, a particular class, a social location, which could look 
very different from your experience of Christianity, from other experiences of Christianity. And again, like you're saying with this humility, there's nothing is going to make me say, so my experience is more valid, or my understanding is more, more better Christian-y, you know, than somebody else's. Yeah. I don't know. I might take some forms of theology to task. <laughs> oh, sure. But I think I need, <laughs> sure. I think there's some things that are just bad or toxic. Yeah. But I think being aware that my faith is informed by my own particular and unique experience is a place of humility that is going to open me up to other cultural, social, political expressions of Christianity. I feel much more comfortable offering in-house critique. Yeah, yeah. In terms of within the house of Christianity than I mm-hmm. do critiquing another religion I really don't know anything about. Yeah. Uh, but I'm more than happy to say that theology is horrible. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I live within this faith. This is my, you know, my faith. So I, I do. And see, that's the thing. We, we don't get enough in-house critique. I don't. Um, it's always the other person. It's always those outside that are the problem. You know, judgment begins with the, the house of the Lord, so to speak. I think we need more in-house critique. At least in our culture, I think. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying, you know, bashing Christians overhead, but I just think there's some really toxic theology out there that leads to all kinds of things, but loving your neighbor or loving others as Christ loved us and so on. So, what's the answer to the question? It's not my business. <laughs> <laughs> that's God's business. I mean, in some ways, I think that's true. I mean, ultimately, judgment is up to God. I believe Christ is the truth and the way and the life. And I'm committed, at least, you know, trying to live out that faith. That's enough work for me <laughs> without having to worry about a bunch of what other folks are doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think we're in a place with a lot of maybe the most interesting questions about our faith where, you know, the Bible doesn't speak directly to that. The Bible is already has us as an audience. The Bible is not a conversion thing for Zoroastrians or, you know, anybody else. It's to the people of the book. You know, something has already brought you to pick that up. You're already in somehow, you know, uh, interested, brought to participating in the faith, and even in you know the most marginal way, and so it's speaking to an audience that is listening. So it's not concerned with what other folks are doing, and that's I think why we don't have those answers there. When I mean, we have the complete you know repetition, repetition that Christ is the way, Christ is the one, um, confess the name of Christ. But again, that's for. That's for us. <laughs> That's yeah. for those who are readers and hearers of that. Yeah, all the New Testament epistles are written to churches. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, right. And, then, and they're dealing with the supposed like interfaith questions that are brought up in Acts or the epistles mm-hmm. are, you know, do you have to convert to Judaism to become part of this faith? Can Gentiles? be part of this faith, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
they aren't questions about what what does God think about Gandhi, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's virtually silent, as, as far as I can tell, on the question of what God does with those who've never heard about Christ. Right. So that's a huge swath of humanity. Right. Which is why I think yeah. we ended up with those very early uh, myths, folktale, whatever, you know, of, of Jesus appearing in other places mm-hmm. after the after the resurrection or after the ascension, you know, uh, to help spread that word somehow because of this anxiety around what happened happened, uh, yeah Yeah. to everybody else who doesn't have access to this story if this is the only story then gosh that's not really fair (laughs) yeah and that's why i think early on you have folks like justin martyr saying look there are these people who are seeking the good and they're christians he calls them christians yeah even though they they weren't necessarily confessing christians so yeah. A good dose of humility and, you know, mind your own business would help. <laughs> now, it's a legitimate question. I know people, that, that really runs through people's mind. Um, I think God's God's good and gracious. It's, it's going to be fine. Yeah. I mean, that's why I, I my first need reaction is, what do you want to know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's going on? Who's asking you? and why? What's going on? Yeah. Tell me, tell me what you're going through. Yeah. What do you want? What What part of this do you want me to, to help? You know, when I share my faith, usually it's at the appropriate time. You know, I don't just go around telling people I'm a Christian and tell them all about it. But there are moments when in the conversation it arises and I'm happy to share my faith mm-hmm. because... Um, I do love Christ and Christ has been very good to me and I'm happy to share that. So, you know, the proclamation I think should come from a place of sharing the good news versus, um, well, trying to save people from eternal conscious torment. Well, right. Because the, (laughs) the good news or the, you know, heart of the faith is that Jesus Christ is the hope for the world. For the world. And so sharing that rather than it's hope, it's hope (laughs) that I'm sharing, not condemnation. You know, I think what's the approach there? You better love this guy or else you're going to burn in hell. I don't I don't know why anyone thought that was ever going to work. That's an abusive system. And it's not the system a lot of early Christians held to. No, no, it's not at all. There's no need to go down that road. I mean, there are a lot of theological reasons to widen our scope on what Christ does. The incarnation, he doesn't just take on the humanity of a single person, but he takes on human nature. Right. And this is the same one through whom all humanity comes into being. Right. So Christ has got it together, man. You don't have to worry. Right. That means that every, no matter someone's relationship to scripture or to having heard the gospel, Christ through the incarnation has transformed human DNA. Everyone is connected to their creator in some way. That's indisputable. Right. And then, you know, the question to then wrestle with with me is why, why would God create something that God wouldn't redeem? Exactly. Is God going to succeed in that love for which 
the love for the cosmos for which God sent the Son, or, you know, do a half half job. <laughs> right. Again, I that passage. I believe in a God who's a winner. <laughs> a winner. My God's a winner. For to this end we toil and struggle because we have hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. It's an astounding statement. Yeah. I think that works. I think that works a lot more than any other proof text. I know. I've got a few more. (laughs) (laughs) But we won't. We won't do that. There's a bunch. Oh, y'all got to read the Bible. (laughs) Are we back on that trope? (laughs) Yeah. The good news is in there, I promise. (laughs) 